This podcast is sponsored by Cleaners Group. Through innovation and engagement of people, businesses and governments, they aim to eradicate microplastic pollution from all angles. The goal is to spread awareness so that people can make informed choices and be part of the solution. For more information, please visit cleanersgroup.com. Today I'm joined by Tim Maddams, a private chef, writer, cookery teacher and presenter. Growing up on a farm in Wiltshire, understanding farming and fostering the love of the great British countryside has become the cornerstone of how Tim thinks about food today. A love for ethically sourced food and a true advocate for sustainability. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, actually. The um, the dreaded coronavirus caught up with me after two and a half years no. of avoiding it. Yeah, no. so I had a, I had a sort of a 12-day hiatus. Um, but I'm back. I'm feeling good. Uh, a bit tired, but but fine. Really good. Yeah. Sun shining. Sun shining. I can see. I can see. It's really good. Yeah. And you're in Scotland, so it's brilliant. I am. I am. <laughs> Northeast Scotland, yeah. Oh, lovely. I want to ask you a question. So my podcast is called Naughty Bites. What's your guilty pleasure? Oh God! <laughs> oh well, I was brought up Roman Catholic, so all pleasure is guilty. Um, you know, you're not you're not meant to enjoy anything. Um, I think. Well, if if we're living in food world, I would have to say, you know, I am terribly partial to those, you know, those really bad seaside ice cream whip things, oh, Mr. Whippies. No. And like I don't know what. Oh, I know they're not ninety nine p anymore, are they? Like, oh, I know, about twenty quid or something. But, um, <laughs> But I think that's a guilty pleasure because I don't. I'm not sure where it's all coming from, but I can't resist that. As you're on the beach and it's like, oh, I've got to have one of those. Yeah. And and do you have like your chocolate flake and the raspberry sauce on? I would definitely have the chocolate flake. Probably not the raspberry sauce, but I mean the chocolate flake. I mean I begin to unpick that and I go, there's almost certainly palm oil in that chocolate flake, isn't there? And I sort of, and I think don't ruin, don't ruin the moment, Tim. Just enjoy your ice cream. <laughs> <Just> enjoy <it. laughs> that's amazing. So. You're a private chef, writer, cookery teacher and presenter. Yeah. What led you down this path and inspired your worldview? Oh, that's that. Well, how long have you got? How long have you got? <laughs> I've got forever. I've got so many questions to ask you. You're going to be like, oh, my goodness, this will be okay. like a three hour, four hour podcast. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll try not to take too long answering. Um, uh, sort of how I got here, potted history of Tim, I guess. Um, so. Uh, I grew up in Wiltshire. My grandfather was a butcher and latterly a restaurateur. My mum always cooked in the house, um, basically because we didn't have any didn't have any money. So you know the whole sort of processed food revolution was going on and, and quietly leaving us behind because you know we, we we couldn't get involved with that. And I was sort of forever grateful for that in a lot of ways actually. Um, and then I went on and became, you know, I've always been quite greedy and not that academic. So I think I ended up like a lot of other people do who are vaguely creative, not uh, not 100 percent neurally uh, standard. And uh, they end up in the fantastic, wonderful circus that is the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was sort of quite lucky. I was in that uh, time of revolution, you know, in London when everything was moving away from or at least a few, the vanguard was beginning to move away from the traditional French cuisine uh, and, and the 
and the sort of restrictive nature of that and you know things were opening up and becoming a bit more yeah. vibrant a bit more interesting um so so that sort of led me through london and, and then i ended up pretty much by mistake working for uh, hfw down at river cottage uh, which brought me nicely full circle back to that sort of beliefs in, um, you know, understanding that provenance is everything, where your food comes from and, you know, minimal food mileage and all of that stuff uh, brought me back to a sort of real core central enjoyment of cookery and an understanding of what I do. Um, uh, and, and, you know, but then running a restaurant or, or several or a few restaurants with them for, for a few, few years when they're quite obsessive things, restaurants, you, they're not good for me certainly um I, I sort of got to the point where it's like right i have a young family and this needs to change so yeah. uh got rid of the job and then sort of started working out how we were going to survive without a <laughs> all-consuming restaurant it. job yeah, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah the wolf's not at the door he's prowling around in the garden somewhere <laughs> yeah yeah but um, so, but yeah so then you love the great british countryside and food and quality produce what's your favorite season and why that's a question i've been asked before and i've got i've got a sort of fairly flippant answer to it it's an interesting one actually because um my opposite number when i was at river cottage this guy called gil meller and we used to discuss things like that these questions would sort of bound around on the rare occasions we got to work together and he said to me oh i really like it when the seasons are changing so that those sort of crossover points between seasons and I think he was very clever with that because he's noticed something there which is that what chefs like is when you get to add something new to what's happening you know up here and on the plate um and I so I'm, I'm definitely stealing his ability to have seen that about himself and I noticed that what he'd said was definitely true for me as well mm-hmm. but I would have to say for me my favorite is that slide between late summer and early autumn weather where the majority of the wild fungi kick off but you've got this super abundance in the garden um but then you know it's right that time now uh you know <laughs> so i might just be thinking that because of that but uh, i think it's definitely one of my favorite times of year fantastic so if you had a recipe for this particular changeover what would it be Oh, um, okay. So that I think you know the squashes are just starting, uh, and the tomatoes are just finishing. And there's a brilliant uh, a mate of mine called Mark Diacono. He's a brilliant. He's an irritatingly talented food writer. <laughs> I've, always, I've always had this dream of being a, a multi, a multi <laughs> yeah. I know, it's, it's really irritating. Surrounded by brilliance with Gil Meller and um, Mark Diacono and John Wright and Hugh and all these people writing incredible books. And I get interviewed on my own podcast, I interview a lot of people who write food books. So basically it's just self-torture because I would love to be good enough to do that. Anyway, Mark has his little book out called Ferment from Scratch. And in there is a little recipe for garam masala fermented tomatoes. You just make garam masala flavors. You chuck them in a brine, you put tomatoes in it, you leave it for two weeks. You take them out when they've gone all fizzy and delicious. so a roasted squash soup with a sauce made from those fermented tomatoes literally by blitzing them maybe with some fermented wild garlic or just some fresh garlic and then just a little bit of sweetness in there that that roasted squash soup with some of those spiced fermented tomatoes and a bit of homemade bread i mean oh that's amazing that's a dream isn't it it is because i don't think grandma's i love it like and yeah. i remember as a child 
you know, your summer holidays were like, oh, great, I'm going with the grandma. And um, <laughs> we'd, have, we'd, be, <laughs> we'd be making like poppadoms all summer. And yeah. literally there'd be like a system in the garden because of the sunshine. We'd have to turn them over, put them on white sheets. And then same with grandma Sala, would dry all the spices. And they wouldn't use an electric food processor. We'd have to use the pestle and water. And literally as children, you're like, why is this beneficial for us? We should be playing in the park. But it brings back memories of yeah. how to do it with Lucas one day if I should decide to do that without it. But it'd be interesting. Okay. Yeah, so, but, yeah but that's an amazing, that, you know, that, I think that's an amazing food memory for you to have. So I'm quite jealous of that. I mean, I remember cooking, I remember picking things from the garden with my mom and I remember her cooking stuff at home and, um she was definitely a better cook than my or is sorry uh, a better cook than my granny who's sadly no longer with us um but my grandfather was a great cook and i think you know you're right at the time perhaps you don't appreciate it yeah. <laughs> you would rather then, be playing because you're like God. end of school and you're like summer and then you're like oh no i've got to learn to cook but it was curious because i remember like in india when we always come back back to the uk our neighbors would always make us like papadons but on what they would do is because their homes are like one level on their roof, they'd put hay down and then they'd fling like the papa dumps on top. So the sun would dry it, so we'd pack it and bring it back. And I remember thinking like, for us, we're thinking, oh my God, you know, how did we do it? But they were just like, it was like a machine. These women were just rolling and flinging and turning. And I'm like, wow. But it's those little things you think, oh, maybe I can do that over here, but it's not the same. Like you do try it. And, maybe it's the way they make it or the way they do it but it's 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 a nice memory to have you know yeah i think there's something there isn't there but recreating stuff but i think ultimately the goal is is sort of superimposed make it yourself and celebrate the fact that it's it's your version you know that it's yeah. you know these are the proper that we're team. making here in spain you know yeah. and celebrate the fact that you've brought that across as part of your food culture and you're sharing it with your family you know i mean I think that's, that's really cool. there's always a temptation to go oh it's not as good as as i remember you know and, yeah. uh, you know what is no definitely so i want to dig deep a little into this whole local food identity so after doing a bit of research during the last few decades consumers are becoming more e increasingly interested in alternative food systems and local food change which has been described as local food identity People are looking at their own food habits within their geography. Oh my goodness, geography. Can't speak. Geographical. Thank you. Yes, that geographical region, which includes regularly used cooking techniques, ingredients, and dishes that are supporting local chefs. Do you think this localness um, should be heightened to gain more consumer interest? Or like, are people? Do you think consumers should be? encouraging this or you know moving towards this trend oh my goodness i'm what i'm hoping is that let's call them can we call them people i don't like the yeah. term consumer um, yeah I, um <laughs> it, it's 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 sort of i don't know I find the whole sort of thing a little bit unpleasant i realize that we all are consuming stuff but um yeah i think people inevitably will revert to value and they will find satisfaction where perhaps they've got bored of the glamour i mean this might not be conscious right but i think for a long time um you know 
We went to hell in a handcart in England and, uh, and, and the rest of the United Kingdom basically just went, brilliant, supermarkets, How what a fantastic thing. Let's let's yeah. do this. This is great. Uh, and there were lots of different reasons for that. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to knock them all. Um, but I think they are here to stay and they will very quickly respond to changes, uh, you know, foisted upon them by their clientele. But people have or are beginning to for a larger volume of people are beginning to go there's nothing really valuable about what we're eating and what we're doing and what we're enjoying and we need to find something else now if that's not available in option a they're going to start looking and they'll hear about it from option b right and then also people are great at talking to each other one of the you know mixed blessings of our age is social media um and you can say oh social media takes up all your time and all of this but actually it can point you at some really great stuff that's happening around the corner that you had no idea yeah. about. Um, so I think, you know, is it is it valuable for us to pursue more localised food uh, and interact with other people about where it comes from and whether we like it or not and who's good at doing it and who isn't good at doing it and is it good value and is it expensive? If you're not having those conversations and you're not involving yourself in that on any level, you're not in touch with it at all. You're just existing in a bubble and at that point, you are only susceptible to marketing and your routine. So yes, I think we should. I think we should support those those changes, those challenges, those movements. Whether you agree with them or not, I mean, you know, go and find out what they're about and immerse yourself in a little bit of an experience to do with it. See what you think. Definitely, I think it's it's curious you say that because um, I remember when I was teaching English with um, with young children, one of the topics was food and. And it was really curious because I'd, the children would have been about seven years old. And we had this conversation of like, you know, what's your favorite food? And, and um, you know, what do you dislike the most? And every single child went, I love my grandmother's lentils because when the seasons change, we have different vegetables in our lentils. And I was like, so you prefer lentils? They were like, yeah, I absolutely hate um, fast food. I don't like hamburgers and I don't want chips. I want wholesome food. And I was like, but why? Like, because I always feel fed when I've had my grandmother's cooking. Because when I fast food, after an hour, I get hungry. And I was like, you're seven. Like, and I would love to have this conversation in the UK with kids at school mm. and see what their perspective is about food and if it's been taught from the parents to the children. You know, it was really. It was an interesting take for them to say, my grandma, my grandmother cooks lentils according to the season and the vegetables change accordingly. And I was like, it was really, it was really, it was fascinating, you know? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's interesting. You sometimes feel a bit like you're bashing your head against a brick wall. Um, you know, certainly uh, sort of getting reasonably long in the teeth in this world. I've yeah. been having a lot of chats about localism and, um, sustainability and food miles and stuff for yeah. you know a couple of decades yeah. and you sort of sometimes think oh, i'm just shouting into an echo chamber you know there's five or six people listening and nobody else and then you have a revelation you know where one of your kids turns around and goes oh no you don't want strawberries at this time of year they're rubbish <laughs> you want to wait till the summer and you just go oh yes at least, <laughs> well, 
all the suffering I've inflicted on you by not letting you have fruit out of season, you know, or why I want you have to eat four or five bits of fruit a day to go with the vegetables from your supper. What are you going to have? Amazing. You've got apples and pears for basically four months. So maybe maybe save them for those four months because you're going to have enough of them then. <laughs> That's amazing. So that leads me to my next question. So modern food processing and farming gave birth to the emergence of alternative cuisines. However, some consumers came to believe that these foods were unhealthy and unethical for us, as well as the planet, leading to people to call for return to home cooking, using unprocessed and natural foods, supporting small farmers and, you know, supporting the smaller food chains, therefore calling this movement counter cuisines and where localness has become a valuable attribute. Do you think this movement's here to stay? Wow. Yeah, I don't think it ever I, I don't think it ever went away. I mean, I love the idea. What did you call it? Counter cuisines. Yeah, they call it counter cuisines, yeah. I like, like that. I, I, I really you... like that. I think a lot of research because we could talk about sustainability for ages and I'm like, mm. there's gotta be more like that we can talk about. And then I realised counter cuisines is this new thing that I've like come across. Mm. And I do like the term. It's it's great. It's an overarching label. So I remember there was something going on in Italy. Uh, you know, about they they were very vociferous about fighting back against the encroachment of fast food into their um, food culture. You know, the Italians are very very um, very vocal about food and yeah. very, you know, they've clung to a lot of their old traditions. Fantastic, pleased yeah. that they have in a lot of ways. Um, it's a cuisine I'm I'm fond of. I mean, I say a cuisine. Obviously, Italy's very recently unified in in historical terms, and there's has various different cuisines. But yeah. you know, to use broad brushstrokes. Um, and they started something, a movement there called the Cucina Povera, the poor, the pauper's kitchen, effectively. And the idea was that people would go out and try and find this this place that was just serving one vegetable and one piece of bread, and you know. But they were doing it with the tradition, with, and it was amazing. It was an incredible thing to eat. There was no menu. There was all of this, and it was cheaper than going, you know, to the to the. I mean, fast food shop or cheaper than going yeah. to the chain restaurant or whatever or the same price and i just thought that was that was a very that's a very italian example of what you're talking about yeah. i think ultimately that they never went away the you know the the vast ways of people majority of the shopping is done at the supermarket most people will cherry pick other things from elsewhere more and more people are going back to having a little bit of something growing even if it's just a pot of herbs in the kitchen yeah. you know people are going back to that fermentation has gone bonkers you know pickling is coming back you know strong and i just think you know even five years ago people would have just gone oh i just go to the shop and buy some pickle yeah now people are looking at what they've got in the fridge oh that's going to go off let's pickle it let's ferment it let's use it let's manage that and that's part of the consciousness mm -hmm. that's going on and and so I think what's happened is it's sort of this this natural way of looking locally for your food and managing your food because it's a really important thing. Uh, you know, it's not something that's disposable. It has an intrinsic value. It's really, you know, it's life-giving stuff. We forgot about it for a little while or we were very distracted from it and some people are still more distracted from it than others, but it never really went away. And fundamentally, the value of your food never really changed. It's still the most important thing because within... You know, within three days, you'll eat anything if yeah. you've had nothing to eat. Um, so 
where I'm going to with this is that I think it never went away. I think it's coming back more and more strongly, but it's just about, um, I don't, I love the term counter cuisines. I love that, bit, but it sort of suggests in a way that there is one model that's the mass model that we should all be sticking to. And even, even labeling something anti that slightly annoys me because it, it's like you, you, you the only way that has ever been successful is by your willing complicity in it. You know, you cannot look at a chicken that's 34 days old and on a supermarket shelf and not know that that has come from a system that has to be not right. But it's curious because some people, some people don't think about it. You know, it's, it's really curious. Um, so it's easier not to, isn't it? In a lot of yeah, let, let's denial. face it, let's face it. You know, it would be much easier not to not to worry about it and to just trust in your trust in your providers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that would be great. But when you abdicate responsibility for stuff, you 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 lose your own connection to it, and you you take away any yeah. blame for yourself. So that it's yeah. just, I don't know. I think I think it's a bit. Oh, it's difficult. I don't want to sound like it's a, a difficult privileged. Question. Yeah, yeah, and it's I think. A difficult the danger is that you start to sound like a, a privileged middle-class tosser and it's okay for you to say that mate you've got this that and the mm. other well okay i mean you know i am a lot better off than a lot of other people i'm not as well off as a lot of people think i am but i am a lot better off than a lot of other people and i totally get that but when you take that back to the idea of the kachina povera the fact that actually some knowledge is therefore more vital to you the less you yeah. have the more you know the yeah. more you are able to sustain yourself the less you will be reliant upon a wasteful system the better yeah. off you will become um, I I, I, yeah i think i think that's yeah that's where i stand so i think i think counter counter cuisine's brilliant let's have let's have, <laughs> yeah. let's have more of them let's it have really, more of them let's make them <laughs> let's make them it mainstream it, it should because um i believe that because i do we we've, we've got to promote this this term Counter cuisine. I think we really have to create a new movement. <laughs> well, I'm there. I'm there. No, so I'm like the sort of old grey-haired hippie in the corner, going right on. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. And, and, and do you know the way to do that is to just cook our way forward. You know, the way 100%. to do that is to cook our way forward. Just, you know, we're we're facing in the UK here a massive winter of discontent. It's like the sequel, the winter of discontent, the sequel. It's gonna, you know, if there are not riots on the streets, I will be surprised. If there are not yeah. huge changes at Parliament, I will be amazed. I think, yeah. you know, we're we're sitting here and people are running around talking to each other. I've been involved with a few food charities over the years, and I can hearing a lot of their policymakers and spokespeople talking and I'm like this is ridiculous this is classic abdication of responsibility by a government yeah. and they are saying is or oh, the third sector will sort it out let's just leave it up to them and actually I think it's going to go deeper than that I think people will sort it out for themselves people will go oh do you know what the guy next door has got nothing to eat we've got more of this than we can eat I'm just going to take him a plate you know, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm imagining that. But if it's just going to sit on their side and go off, they will do that. I, I fully believe that people will just go, actually, this is really important. Let's help each other. And I think that, you know, the third sector will have a role to play, definitely. But ultimately, what will happen is communities will strengthen and start to look after themselves. And when that happens, they'll start to look at the source of their food. And as soon as they do that, we will get 
you know, like we've got brilliant examples of all over the place, you'll get micro farms popping up in all sorts of different places, allotments getting together and saying, okay, well, we're producing more than we need. Let's share it with the community center. Once a week, there's going to be a hot meal at the community center. You turn up, you pay whatever you can afford or nothing. And if you volunteer to do the washing up as well, great. You know, and I think those things will happen because people will, you know, they realize, you know, we all realize what's truly important to us when we get hungry, when we get thirsty and when we are worried about where we're going to stay. And that's a terrible, terrible thing. But, you know, we worry about so many other things that aren't really important. So I hope I hope that, you know, this terrible winter of discontent will have lots of negative effects on lots of people. But what I really hope is that it, overall it's going to wake up. Uh, wake up a sort of general consensus of more opinion that actually we need to sort of look after each other a bit too. But it's curious because I remember my grandma used to say, my both grandparents, that when they came to the UK in the 60s, I think, 60s, 70s, that's what people used to do. They'd go to neighbours and look, I've got extra, I don't know, spinach, do you want some? Take some. Or they'd make something with it and pass it on because they'd they hated food waste because they were like you're not moving until you've eaten what's in your plate because i will not throw that food in the bin and it was this whole thing of surplus it's like we have extra you share it with your neighbors because there'll be someone that will need it more than you um and the same with the allotments i know that people have allotments and they share their vegetables and fruit and because they think when well, i've got a lot let me share it and it's like this whole thing of bringing a community together and helping one another and i hope that is there to stay if not it'll manifest into something a lot greater um because right now i feel like what's going on in the uk people may not be able to afford you know like in the in the us it's cheaper to buy fast food than to grow your own food and buy your own fresh vegetables i hope that doesn't happen as much in the uk but that's subsidised, right, isn't it? There's only yeah. one way you get into that situation, and that is, you know, that's by scale of volume and subsidy. I mean, you know, it's it's that's that's a whole different chat. I think you brought up something there, food waste, and I think, yeah. you know, for me, that's something that we shouldn't have any vocabulary for. You know, yeah. I, it should just not exist. It's it's, yeah. it's you know. I find it difficult myself. I develop quite recipes for people for their websites to promote that they're they're sort of foodstuffs, you know. And I will let's say I have a photo shoot for a day, and we might be shooting four or five different recipes, and we've got to got to shoot them in different ways. And I'm thinking, ah, this is playing merry hell with my carefully planned, you know, food for the week. Yeah. Chaos that's going on in my head. Um, what am I going to do with this? Because I'm creating extra meals. Some of them will freeze. Some of them won't. Some of them the photographer can take. We can eat some of it now, but that's going to, you know. And so we all end up in situations where precious food could go to waste. Yeah. But so many of those are avoidable by the, the real simple process. It's just before you chuck something out, just stop, put it down, disconnect yourself from that current situation and think about it. Yeah. Does it really need to go in the bin? You know, does it really need to go in the bin? Can you freeze it? Can you give it to somebody else? What is it? I mean, maybe it does need to go in the bin. Maybe it's gone off. Maybe it's damaged, whatever, of course. But amazing how much you will reduce, you know, your auto, I call it auto food wasting, where people mm -hmm. think they haven't got the time to sort something out, you know. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, just take a bit of a moment sometimes, but. I think I think that's a good thing, you know, to take a moment because I think our life is so chaotic and rushed. 
when the, even with our food everything's fast fast and fast like we don't take that one second to go actually no i can put that in the fridge and make the extra vitamin to fried rice mm. and vegetables like just repurposing your food you know i think it's something that we should be doing more often so mm. learning about our food and its origins has deeply impacted our food choices ultimately helping to protect our planet do you think a lot of the generation do you think it's a generational thing or everybody's becoming more aware of this um okay so it's one of those situations where i think i think modern social media has helped to get some stories out there in terms of thinking more about what you eat that's dangerous because it happens in sound bites uh, you know a lot of the time if someone's got a lot of followers on a platform we start to see them as being more genuine uh, and if their information's wrong or poorly thought out or fine in their situation but not in someone else's then it, you know we can can make the wrong choices and i don't want to delve into that yeah. any sort of examples of that because ultimately people should be free to make their own choices um but what i think is it is generational to a degree in that i think it's now easier if you've never had any connection with local food systems or alternative if you want to call them alternative food systems then then that's more available to you because you have new ways of finding them but i also think older generations have seen a lot of this stuff spring up come go and they've they've stuck to their guns in some way, you know, maybe they're still growing their apples and they're still doing these things. And they're like, well, you know, it's the autumn, so we're going to eat this. And and this is what's cheap at this time of year. And it's driven by lots of different stuff. So is it generational? Yes, it is. Um, but it, that is not a clear picture. It's not as easy as to say, oh, this generation think that and this generation think that and this generation think that. Um, that it does that. It doesn't really answer your question, but I think that's where I stand on it. Yeah. Never, I love these conversations with you. I think because it gives my listeners as well a different perspective. Of, a question can mean something to me, but something totally different to you. And I think it's good for people to understand different views of one topic, you know? And yeah, and, yeah. the importance is to ask the questions and to discuss them. And I definitely. think I'm a conversationalist. Um, you, you know, uh, I have a podcast. It's very old-fashioned, very long format. And people just come on and we talk about food. And it's... It's great because you need a space to have those chats. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it boils down necessarily to right or wrong. Like I was involved with fisheries um, mm. politics for a little while and did a bit of fisheries campaigning. Um, and I think there's a lot wrong with that. You know, what is a common resource that's being very badly looked after? Yeah. Like all the common resources are badly looked after. You know, energy yeah. and environment and all of that stuff. But you know, it, it, I became very polarized. It's like, well, I'm just you know, I'm fed up with people eating this, this and this. There are three obvious wins within the world of seafood that you could just say, OK, just stay clear of those. But then if you stay clear of those, people then eat other stuff that creates a problem over there. So it's not as clear cut as you as you go along, you know, and I think if you can't have the conversations and be flexible mm -hmm. about where you are and what you're eating and uh, Thai shrimp paste is a great example. Like I love cooking with Asian flavours and Thai fish paste is one of those. It was like oh, shrimp paste can't really use that i'm not a big fan of, uh, of of you know shrimp farming and i think wild shrimps to a degree probably overfished in lots of places what do i what do i how do where do i stand on this because i really like this and then someone said to me it's really interesting because most of the shrimp paste is made from the shells 
that would otherwise go to waste from the shrimp processing factories and i was like you would never know that and you would never I mean, where did they find out that information you know yeah. and i was like well that's really fascinating they were like yeah so you're actually eating a waste product at which point you could say you're greenwashing the prawn industry <laughs> but you, you could also say yeah. okay well i'm but i'm eating part of the problem yeah uh which you know it, it's a, it's up to each individual human where they land on either side yeah. of that argument and which which path they choose but I want, you know, if people are thinking about it and having the conversation, then it will be moving forward, won't it? Definitely. And I feel like with those sort of views, like you said, the two sides, it's like a Pandora's box with your brain. It's like, where do I, it's like you're fighting with your thoughts and what your beliefs are. And it's, it's you know, it, it becomes an occupational hazard sometimes because you <laughs> should I, when you're in this industry, you realize thinking, when does your brain stop? You know, when do you breathe and you know take a moment to go? Okay, you know, step like take a step back. But it's it's difficult, I think, sometimes. You know, and um, yeah. So you appeared. This is my question, actually. So I'm glad you mentioned the fisheries. So you appeared with Hugh Fenley on the River Cottage, as well as the yep. fish fight. Do yep. you think it's helped people understand the associated values of both the series? What I mean to say is, do you think it's helped change the way we think about fish or that small farms are a substitute for local and um, organic attributes, supporting the belief that local demand is motivated by associated values rather than geographic proximity? Um, yeah, so it never, uh, I mean, it astonishes me. I don't really watch a lot of telly uh, and uh, it is let me think flora my daughter is 10 and i left river cottage when she was born i think we might have done a bit of filming for the fish fight and maybe a little bit of river cottage the year after that but it's at least 10 years really yeah. since any of that was done and i think river cottage have recently re restarted making a bit of telly i haven't seen any of it but what it what's interesting to me is that even after all that time in the world we live in now a decade is a long time right particularly in the world of media but people still come to me and go oh you know i remember this thing you made i can't even remember the thing that i made in the field with you or in the garden with someone and they're like oh i remember this thing you made and we use that cookery tip all the time and that was what started us with our growing our pots of herbs and now half the gardens are vegetable oh, I'm like, holy moly you're doing better than me I'm mumming <laughs> over my new polytunnel. Which polytunnel shall I buy? Well, I need to get on and get it. Otherwise, it's not going to be here in the spring when I need it. And these guys, have they've been inspired. They've picked it up. So there's no doubt in my mind that the beneficial uh, or the positive ripples from, uh, from the series that was River Cottage, which ran for a long time, mm -hmm. I think it was 13 years or something, uh, long before I got involved and, and a little while afterwards too. Um, I, I think that's had a lot of positive impact on a lot of people and they've picked up a lot of you know elements or threads from it and taking mm. them away now you can't we can't all have a farm and live an idyllic life and, and i think that's really important to realize too yeah. you know but we can all support one you yeah. know, and we can all benefit from one um you know and, and but at the same time i don't want to knock anyone who's a farmer right now you know farmers work hard to make a living for, yeah. in a difficult industry where they're currently price squeezed at both ends yeah. they've been they've been told to you know, follow this one golden route of, of modern agrochemical farming 
Um, and now everyone's turning around and going, oh, you can't keep doing that. And they're like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, no, no, for sure. You know, we've been trying to scrape a living at the, you know, from these market forces. Um, uh, and and it's not, you know, it, it's all changing. And I, I don't like, I don't like farmer bashing because ultimately they grow our food for us. Um, and, and, you know, they are to an extent these days controlled by the supermarkets or a lot of them are. Yeah. And I would rather that the pressure for change for the farmer came came via consumer demand consumer are you made me say it <laughs> this dangerous word <laughs> via, via people power and i think that's what something like the fish fight did was it just raised awareness you know um a, a lot of chat about the common fisheries policy and a lot of chat about sustainable fish and and then that brings you back to the always the my favorite trap which is when people at a dinner party look at me and they go so what fish can we eat then and Caroline, my long-suffering, ever-elusive, better half, looks at me and I'm like, we haven't got time to have that chat, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Can of worms, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But it must be frustrating sometimes when you do go to a dinner party and you have to talk shop, you know. It's nice just to not talk shop as well sometimes, you know. I'm usually just so pleased that for once it's not me cooking that I, I'm awesome. just I'm just in this wonderful blissed out state of like wow awesome I haven't had to prepare this meal or think about where it's come from I'm just going to have a chat with the people here about what's going on and we're going to have a nice evening and that's, oh, that's just amazing. always a joy and then people often you know that because I think they get very nervous about cooking for a chef was oh, that all right or do you think about this I grew this myself and before you know it you're in the conversation anyway because actually that is you know although part of it is my job it you know and what I do for a living and the things I think about and my reason for being it's also everybody's life you know mm. you forget that food we talk about it in terms of policy and um, global quantities and food waste structures and landfill systems and all of this stuff that gets talked about at NGO and governmental levels and policymakers. You forget that on the on the ground, folk are dealing with that all the time. You know, and, and for everyone that's standing out there like me and going, "We well, must stop wasting food." There are five out of ten people at home going, "What am I going to do with this before I throw it away?" And they're already thinking that. And then there are other people going, waste food? Are you mad? I haven't got a penny to put in the electric meter, yeah. let alone, you know, waste half a bag of pasta because I've cooked too much. You know, I mean, that would be a dream world. Yeah. And it's so it's, it, you know, it, it's nice to, to get out and just have actual chats with actual people because um, you then realise that it's not as, it's not all doom and gloom. There's lots of people doing great stuff. Um, and you know we we need to support everyone and just keep the conversation moving and and celebrate the good stuff as well as complain about the things that we don't think are right yeah it's actually curious like because during university i'd go back to my grandma's doing reading week and uh I'd, you know technically read at my grandmother's never did but um like <laughs> she used to grow her own vegetables in her garden and um she never wasted so because she didn't waste which meant i had to eat it i think i put on like two jean sizes in a week because it was like i'm on a bg you cannot waste any more food i don't cook that much then and it was a whole thing of it was nice not having to cook but then it, you know my body suffered and it's not great when you're a student but it was nice it was nice it was a nice feeling of being cooked for as opposed to cooking for someone 
yeah that is nice well that's but that's a new thing as well isn't it i think it's interesting because uh i think the body's ability to put on weight when it's eating surplus food is a natural part of its ability to store that for, for times of less uh and and i think you know we're, we're very body conscious these days or certainly you know in my early 40s losing my hair i'm very body conscious um and i think you know that's that's quite a negative thing in terms of people's relationships with food i think it's okay to put on a bit of weight in the summer and autumn if the winter's going to be lean you know that's yeah. a natural part of our cycle but no one would ever dare say that or think about that you know um particularly if you know you 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 are going to be let's say you do grow your own vegetables and you have a glut in the summer and you eat loads and loads and loads of beans and the protein from that makes you put on a bit of weight and you go oh no i've put on a bit of weight but it's okay because in the winter i'm going to be eating broth and kale because there's nothing else you know so i so so i sort of i see what you're saying and I, and I think that's an interesting thought i probably haven't thought before about actually storing food waste in our own yeah. bodies yeah. um or time or time of plenty for time of for time of not plenty and i guess that must be a um a function of the human body from you know when time when times were a lot less certain yeah definitely because like i think she as a student even though i've studied food i'd always eat in the kitchen so when we were prepping our food doing um like cookery class i always ate that was my lunch day i'd literally eat the food we'd be cooking um which makes sense me. right yeah <laughs> why not i'm a student i've <laughs> literally i'll go I'd go to the supermarket and get all the reduced stuff in the evening because I knew it'd go to waste. I'm going to eat it. And it was a cheaper food shop for me as a student. But she always knew that I wouldn't eat properly. So she's like, I'm going to stuff you like a goose. And then I know that <laughs> at university, you'll lose it again. It was my surplus, like body, my body yeah. warmer. And yeah, you're like the... a couple of weeks. <laughs> Why not? You are... <laughs> You are human. You are human foie gras. That's that's what you are. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, you touch on a great point there. I think, you know, the reduced style, and it's really interesting because I have for the last few years I've been very lucky. I, I I sort of I haunt the reduced food sections in my local supermarket because mm -hmm. if I have to go in there, let's face it, nearly all of us shop in supermarkets for various things at various times. Yeah. Um, if I go in, I always check the reduced style because I'm. A, because I'm interested to see what oversupply there is, and it's it's definitely decreased in recent years. They've got much better at managing that. Um, you do see empty gaps on shelves these days, which is a good thing. You know, the idea that you can walk into a room the size of two football pitches, stacked floor to ceiling with food from all over the globe, and it will never run out. It's just a chimera. You know, I mean, that's an invention. It's there to make you feel comfortable about buying more and lowering your food value acceptance acceptance anyway i've digressed and i used to do that and i still do do that if i go in the supermarket i'll always go and scope out what's what's you know what's reduced what's what's short life what can i get a bargain on because um i feel like i'm winning at that point apart from anything else um and it's really interesting in the last three months i would say my forays to the reduced style have been way less successful in terms of picking up mega bargains because a lot more people are shopping there they're going there first when they walk in the supermarket and they're quite often walking out again if there's nothing there that's reduced which is a sort of damning indictment perhaps on on where we are right now certainly in the uk um in terms of uh in terms of you know um people's cost of living um but i i, I like that i think i think it's great that you were doing that i think I, you know 
you go to the supermarket, find the stuff that's going. Um, markets, when I lived in London, markets were brilliant for that. Um, you could go to your local market and buy bags of fruit that was so ripe it was about to fall apart. But you could buy a bag of fruit for a pound and yeah. it would be like 10 plums or five bananas or a bunch of apples. And you'll have seen the stalls yourself in various places. They've got everything yeah. already in a bowl or whatever. And you just pick up a bowl, <laughs> tip it, tip it in a bag and you give them a quid. But you could feed yourself for nothing, you know, on yeah. on an incredibly delicious fruit rather than something from the shops that's all perfect and lovely, but actually isn't ripe and doesn't taste of anything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, reduced section is a great way to, oh, to beat supermarkets at their game and to take advantage of some some brilliant, really um, brilliant yeah. bargains. Always, yeah, always, always. So I've read that you you've been classed as a free range foodie. So. <laughs> What aspects of a free-range foodie do you love the most? <laughs> oh, that's that's come back to. And he called you that. He called you that anyway. Like. Well, that's that's come back to haunt me. I coined I coined that um, phrase myself about myself, and it's come oh back God. to haunt me. Um, well, because one of my biggest, uh, you know, when it, throughout my whole career as a professional chef, I always felt, you know, in a lot of ways, when I was thinking about the quality of what produce we were serving, particularly latterly, you know, when I was working for, um, you know, people like Alistair Little, uh, who sadly passed away recently, but an incredible man, totally focused food-wise on what's in season and what's brilliant and using as much of it as possible. Um, Fergus Henderson, similar ilk. Uh, and, and, you know, when I ended up at River Cottage, I was just thinking, it's amazing, you know, all the way through my career, I feel like we care more about what we're eating than the people that are preparing it. <laughs> and so it was quite important for me when I went freelance that I became, you know, uh, a bit more quality of life, a bit more, you know, uh, a bit less sacrificial, if you like. Uh, that's the wrong way to put it, but more, more in charge of my own time. And then the free range bit, I think, sort of comes in because... I am wandering about from one place to another, um, sticking my nose in, <laughs> having, an, <laughs> have, having an opinion, um, you know, talking to other people about their food businesses, um, getting it wrong, getting it right, learning, uh, having long conversations, having short conversations, having long arguments and, and, and short, short ones. But that free range foodie, that, so that is self, unfortunately, self-created label. <laughs> Um, because it occurred to me that that's what I was doing. And it also occurred to me that I wanted, and I do want other, other cooks, other chefs, everyone in hospitality mm -hmm. to feel more valued and to not feel like they are less important than the ingredients that they're selecting. Oh, I love that last sentence. That was such like a pause for thought. I like that. Um, so we had this discussion the other day, like over the phone, but what does... We, we were saying that sustainability has become a buzzword but what does sustainability mean to you like how does it translate into your kitchen especially when it comes to sourcing and serving food yeah okay well i think i've recently you know i i grew up in the generation of very simple video games there was one when i was a young lad on sega master system called alex kid and it was an old platform you won't remember any of this this is like black and white tvs to you but um but yeah, it was what we called at the time a platform game. And you had to jump up on platforms and get past various bosses. And then you get to the next level. Yeah. And the next level would make you see the whole game slightly differently. Well, I have recently had uh, a moment where my brain has shuffled enough folders around that it's gone, okay, 
sustainability is very simply identifiable as long-term thinking mm-hmm. if you think about you know with your food if you think long-term about your food and you're in a position let's say a privileged position to be able to think long-term about it and invest in it then your food will be more sustainable within your kitchen in your home because okay. you're taking a longer view about it the less reactionary you are so when you run out of something and you need it or you're trapped in the idea that you have to cook this recipe that you've embarked upon then you have to have this ingredient then you're likely to drop everything and go shopping now when you're there you're going to buy something else you didn't need and then that's going to fall you into a food waste trap you've spent some energy going to the shop on a on a mission to get something that actually if you just went oh i haven't got that i'm going to make something slightly different mm-hmm. you've taken control back you've saved yourself a shopping trip and all of the potential pitfalls of it and you've mm-hmm. made something different which will encourage you to think about maybe making it again or changing another dish you sometimes have on your own repertoire um also very lucky because people pop round with things like i live next door i mean let's be clear this isn't going to happen for everyone i live in <laughs> northeast scotland um and i live next door to a guy who is uh, a ranger for the estate he looks after um it manages stuff on the estate one of his jobs is to um protect some crops and at this time of year we have wild geese coming from um greenland um uh, and iceland and they are pink-footed geese and they come and they land and most of the time that's not a drama and they're left alone so every now and again they'll land in a field that's got a crop in it that needs to be harvested and they start to cause problems with that so they'll be moved on uh, and some of them will be shot as a deterrent to others and that produces meat wild very sustainable um, delicious meat and i'm very lucky that sometimes someone will turn up at my door with a goose or something oh. like that and like, wow how am i going to fit this into you know the 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 ever evolving kitchen life that's that's part of my my world um so how do we how do i make sustainability choices at home we've touched on the supermarket one always try and beat them at their own game always go to a supermarket with a plan um always shop with a glut always look around you to what there is so you know you might not be an expert forager but you know i read an article recently about a guy who'd spotted so many avocados growing in london um forgotten avo- well there you go forgotten avocado trees so people have planted avocado trees out in their sheltered gardens in london and there's avocado fruits hanging on them you know this is a this is a 20-year thing phenom- oh, wow. phenomenon so you know that's a that's a new one right that's a, a an example to capture your imagination but crab apples a uh, big one in the hedgerows wild plums all of that stuff now you know if you live in a more urban environment you're less likely to be able to pick up free food from nature um i understand that but you don't what i'm saying is you don't need to be a forager to take advantage of of great opportunities um cooking apples it doesn't matter where you live at the right time of year cooking apples will be free um across the united kingdom people desperately to take them away um but long term okay long term think as long term as you can so rather than oh i'm hungry i haven't got anything what shall i buy go and get something eat it forget about it until the next time think larder you know think what am i gonna you know what can i get what can i make that's gonna feed us three or four times what can i have that's a base what's you know what's available a good price right now that's in season because invariably stuff that's in season will be the cheapest because it's well 100 percent flavor wise gonna be the tastiest yeah no doubt about that um i think frozen vegetables are overlooked as well i mean i don't like to um 
because I'm not a frozen vegetableist. I don't believe that they're better than fresh vegetables. But I think if you've got a bag of sweet corn and a bag of peas in your freezer and maybe a bag of spinach, um, it's very likely that you can you can rustle up a curry or a stew or a soup, um, you know, with very little else, an onion and a few spices. Um, you know, that's going to that potentially feed you for a week if you needed it to, you know, say you so you weren't well and you couldn't go out to the shops or your freezer broke down and you lost a heap of something that you hadn't realized you were going to lose but so i think for me that's it don't don't make too much if you do make too much make sure you've got a plan if you're going to batch cook make sure you've got a plan to store it do batch cook if you can because it will save you um taking the easy option of phoning out for food or nipping out for a potentially slightly disappointing meal um you know plan your eating out if you can to go places where you know it's going to be great and you're excited about what they're going to be serving and you know that you believe or share the beliefs of the people that are um, that are providing that dining experience as well so all of those things will bring you sustainability into your into your home and the ultimate one the number one is cook as much stuff from scratch as you can because until you do you won't cook any more stuff from scratch and until you take control of your own cookery you don't really have response you know you it's hard mm -hmm. to be responsible for where your food's coming from because it's it's deliberately hidden from you by the processes involved in getting it to you definitely when you said frozen vegetables if you open my freezer door it's very anemic all i have in there is frozen peas <laughs> frozen carrots yeah. um and a mixed vegetable bag that's literally it. Maybe some cauliflower that I've surplus off and I shoved it in the freezer for like cauliflower soup or curry. Yeah. yeah. But that's it. All the other drawers are empty because um, I don't, I like, because I buy for what I need. So in season, minimum, and um, I cook with a lot of like lentils and veg and um, buy meat that's from the village. So literally, yeah, no, my house, my, my kitchen is very, um, I cook for like three days because I'm like, I don't want to cook again because of time. And so it's also not time and I'm like, nah, I'm not feeling it today. Let's just have leftovers. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. But leftovers can be the best meals you have. And I think, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely hitting it on the spot for me. I think it's just about owning your food yeah. situation. It's just about taking responsibility for it because as soon as you do, you start to think about it. And that's, mm. you know, that's brilliant. I mean, I would say to that is a couple of things that I would say is like, if you're batch cooking, and I'm late to the party on this one. Um, uh, my friend Catherine Phipps, who's a brilliant food writer, has recently sort of um, shamed me into getting a pressure cooker and it's changed my life. We, <laughs> yeah. we eat a lot more soup and pulses as a direct result of the fact that it takes virtually no time to cook them anymore. Um, so she was, she was right and I was wrong and that's brilliant. So get yourself a modern pressure cooker if you can. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> Oh you've got one you got one, yeah awesome yeah. and i think I'm, i might be wrong on this because modern technology has taken made quite a lot of advances but if your freezer's nearly empty you should fill up some tubs with water and put them in it because it will use less energy to stay frozen oh, really i don't yeah. know that. i think i think i might I'll be out of date it, it might but be yeah, out of date no, information because i hate having like ice cream in my freezer or like frozen food because i can't I, as a child i never liked it um and then when i went, studied food I was literally reading all the labels of like, oh, like what is in this product? And I think when you're studying food, you're more aware of what you're eating. And so for that reason, I don't have a lot of frozen anything in my freezer. 
well the stuff that's in our freezer i mean there might be the odds uh packet or something you know for the kids uh i think mm -hmm. i'm gonna have to confess to uh some pollock fish fingers there'll, there'll definitely be a packet of fish fingers in there um but the freezer is full of stuff like it's full of homemade baked beans it's full of homemade mm -hmm. curries it's full of all that stuff because people imagine that you know it's all very well for me because i swan around and i've got time every day to cook from scratch Impossible, but I, yeah. yeah no i don't nobody does you know we're all very busy and it, like most households my wife works full-time i work full-time we have two children who seem to have a club every five minutes in a far-flung <laughs> location you know uh, it's not like when i was a child um but you know we we eat ready meals all the time that we've made ourselves you know you go to the yeah. freezer you take something out heat mm -hmm. it up in the microwave or stick it in the oven if that's already on or or whatever uh mm -hmm. you know i think the freezer is a brilliant tool keep it full of stuff that you've made yeah and we did like when i was pregnant because I, I knew i was not going to cook food so everything when i was pregnant i cooked made in batches and shoved in the freezer so, that, so for the first month i i am um, i am um, lived off everything that i cooked beforehand because when you have a baby you know what it's like it's just it's impossible to have two minutes to yourself life <laughs> changes life it changes does. Yeah. it does you know you look like a walking zombie every day it's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> well my children are my children are 12 and 10 now uh so it's a different game but you do have to get through it's taking you back to that sega mega drive game that sega master system game you've got back to go through day. the levels you've got to go through the levels yeah yeah you've got to you get do. through the levels you do so um i've got a few more questions left but like you know in your career you're, you know you're a writer you're a presenter a, an author a, you know a chef have you been you know have you been able to tell in your career like that food has a story you know where it comes from how it's made it's got a process and a lot of us see food without really knowing where it comes from how it's produced and the impact on people communities the environment have you in the work in the line of work that you have that you do have you been able to reconnect people with their food um, well, the only answer to that is that I hope so. I mean, there's one or two examples where I know that I have been instrumental in doing that or that mm. people have come up and said, you're, you know, what you're saying is absolutely right. But you do, you're always worried that you're shouting to, you know, you're preaching to the choir, as it were. Um, mm. And that is always going to be a concern. But I think, I think we have, it has to have been making a difference. It has to have been, you know, some of the stuff that I'm seeing now coming from generations much younger than myself, your generation as well uh, you know you're seeing this consciousness this thought process a little bit more going on you know there's a there's, there's a huge change in people's casual drinking which is a really interesting one to me because wow. that comes from thoughtfulness right and realization and self-understanding and you can't go on that journey with drink and not apply it to everything else that's going on in your life you know mm -hmm. so you are going to start to think more about what you're eating too because you're not running on autopilot and just having a beer and grabbing some whatever so i think that's an interesting indicator um and, and i just think you know the growth in organic the growth in local this is all it's, it's it's mainstream in the restaurant industry now you know you go to somewhere outside of a city center you go to a restaurant it's almost certainly going to be telling you what on the menu has come from nearby yeah. and the bread is likely to be homemade well you know 20 years ago that certainly wasn't the case um 
and I think you know it, it has made a difference. I, I mean, how much of that I can take ownership for, I don't know. If it's if it's directly uh, linked on a graph as to how much time I've spent flapping my lips about it as to how successful it's been, <laughs> then we've done well. But I do wonder if people, you know, maybe I talk too much about it and people get bored and turn away. But you know, who knows? Okay. And um, well, I think you've reached. I mean, you know, I'm living in Spain and I already heard about you and I've researched you and like researched you. Yeah, done some research about you. Um, but you know, your words and your work have you know jumped across the pond, so to speak. So you know, maybe the graph will be a little higher. You never know. You know, yeah 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 maybe well and i think you know uh well and also what i feel about it is i've always felt about it is you know i can talk about it if anyone listens to me or not there's no that's beyond my control but i can share what i believe and i can show yeah. people what i think is a is a better way of cooking a p and ham soup yeah. you know i can tell them what i think and they don't have to listen and if they do i think it'll make their life better and if it doesn't they haven't lost anything so yeah. you know i would rather I would rather carry on saying it and thinking about it and talking about it than give up. But at times I have felt like, you know, yeah, you know, when they, when, when they set the international bluefin tuna catch quota at three times the scientific level for the fifth time in five years and you just go, what is the point? You know, why is yeah. anyone saying anything? We might as well just get on a massive carbon party and smash yeah. this place up, you know. Um, it's hard sometimes <laughs> to, to carry on yeah. giving caring, you know, but but you have to you know you have to i guess it's, it's true it's who i am i can't be anybody else i like i like how you've said that because as well like your last sentence you mentioned about the tuna fish and it does bring me to my next question actually food systems are highly complex and interconnected how are food systems influencing and being impacted by climate change in the uk Wow. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. I know. I'm actually so right. This is mastermind. This is your day. You're in that black chair. Oh, my God. Um, well, you know, I mean, I, I also, well, we've been exporting water poverty and food poverty for, for the last couple of generations. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, we've been subsidizing cheap food via expensive healthcare. Um, and I think that has to change. And maybe that will will start to change as the economy slows down and perhaps people realize that endless growth is not the only option um but that's a that's a that's a hope and a dream for the future um uh, it, climate change is definitely affecting uh what we're eating or or at least is interconnected with it you know there's mm -hmm. there can be no uh, can be no doubt about that really i mean if you're cutting down rainforest to grow palm oil so that people can have cheap chocolate in the united kingdom then you are directly affecting um you know climate change there's no, there's no doubt about it uh it, i wish people would care more about the ocean uh, because you know it has a far greater ability to store carbon than than the land and, and we're still plundering that resource and breaking its ecosystems and therefore squandering its ability to store that carbon if carbon is the only thing we care about these days um then then i think we should pay more attention to that um uh, uh, the you know the i would say what's going to be interesting is that the increase in the real cost of living for most people will be a driving factor in them taking back control of what they eat and that in turn will do probably more good for the environment in terms of fighting 
climate change than if we all switch to electric cars tomorrow. It's curious to say that, you know, I I don't know, but when I look at my food labels now, because it's it's, it's, a, it's become a normal thing for me now in the supermarkets, and don't get me wrong, I love my digestives, but I haven't had one in years because when I check the ingredients, my heart breaks when I see that one ingredient and I'm like, palm oil. I'm like, yeah. why? Like, why? And I think because I saw a video of an orangutan pushing a, what they call those tractory craney things. I don't know. I'm rubbish with like transport stuff, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah, worry. That's <laughs> okay. I remember, and, 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 and I saw the video and I, and I actually shared it. And I was like, my heart broke thinking, an animal like an orangutan is pushing away this this big massive machinery like stop but this is their natural habitat and i don't have anything in my kitchen with palm oil i refuse to have anything with palm oil because i see the damage that it's causing everywhere and i'm like was food like that when i was a child i don't know because i never read labels when i was eight or five or whatever but surely food production wasn't that cheap you know using cheaper ingredients to make food last longer it's you know was it well, and it's that? it's just it's just profit isn't it it's cheaper to mm -hmm. do that than to than to grow you know i mean it's like so i have a similar problem here in the uk there's a, a lot of people say oh use rapeseed oil it's local mm -hmm. and so on and i'm sort of like yeah okay it's, it's it's a local oil but it's a monocrop that has to be grown every single year yeah. what's wrong with olives you know that you plant the tree the olives grow okay yeah. there'll be some chemical spray probably if it's not organic of some sort to keep i don't know what it is olive weevil or something away um mm. but ultimately you've planted a tree and it's going to crop for 100 years or more and produce yeah. an oil that you just mill from it in a place where olives have been grown for a very very long time so you're not stealing more land for agriculture yeah. and monocropping it I, and I, I think i'm doing that in an environment that's as pristine as the rainforest is you know is criminal and you're never going to convince me that that's fair you can say yeah. tell me that that's about food security as much as you like that it's is not. about it's yeah. about profit yeah. um and you know food and profit or have an interesting relationship and it's a, it's generally a damaging one mm -hmm. um outside of the hospitality industry anyway i think it's it's the worry everyone needs to make some money to live i get that but a dash for mega millions and is, is not a good thing but it's not necessarily any better to do that than to say push a field mouse or a chaffinch out of its natural habitat in the united mm -hmm. kingdom because you're not growing late flowering barley anymore or late maturing barley you're growing rapeseed which mm -hmm. is in harvested and done by midsummer, um, highly dependent. In, and there are people that are doing it differently. You know, they're using soil management and they're using biodiversity and incredible stuff to grow oilseed rape now, which is yeah. to be applauded. But on the mainstream, you're talking about a very expensive chemical crop that requires an awful lot of fertilizer and NPK. You know, it's an expensive input thing to produce an oil locally. Well, actually, you know, the reason that in the United Kingdom, a lot of our old recipes, if you go back more than 40 years, they contain requests for butter, lard, dripping. Yeah. Okay, Because those are the fats that were part of our traditional food system. And there was yeah. nothing wrong with them. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 for sure. For sure um, but... Anyway, anyway, you've, you've sidetracked me massively. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, yes. Yeah. So uh, it, it, is, will the food system in the United Kingdom change to become less uh or is it being affected by uh climate change 100 percent okay
I think so too. But my last question for you, what's next for you? And if yeah. you think about future for of gastronomy, what do you think needs to happen to future-proof the hospitality industry and the environment? Okay, well, I think for me, the future is the past. There's no, you know, there isn't an answer out there that we don't have. We know how to grow food without without chemical intervention because we we did it before the chemical mm -hmm. intervention came along. The guy that invented the chemical intervention and won a Nobel Peace Prize for it told everyone that it was a limited lifespan on it. Um, you know, I think I think we can all accept that as fact. So I don't think that there needs to be um, a huge revolution in terms of knowing how to grow food. Uh, I think we know. I think we know how to do it already. Um, I just think we need to go back to that. And I don't paint a halcyon past. I know we need more crops than we did then and more land will need to be used for agriculture and more more sea perhaps could be used for agriculture, um, you know, or, or you know, growing seaweed and, and things like that that benefit the environment and clean the water and produce a habitat for sea creatures at the same time. Um, that's not my idea, but it's, it's definitely true. Um, my vision for that you know would be that let's value food more so that we understand what its real value is um let's let's pay the right price for it even if that increases what it costs people who are on low incomes or struggling to feed themselves can be supported in other ways they don't have to be um we don't have to 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 damage our entire food system and produce low value food simply so that everyone can afford to spend their portion of their money to to feed themselves if yeah. if if there are people in society who can't feed themselves that's part of a wider problem that is not to be answered by farmers and supermarkets in my opinion yeah. that's just my opinion um there are people that will disagree with me and i'm happy to have the chat and maybe they'll change my mind um <clears throat> but if we can do that and and value food more uh, and focus on that i think you will you will improve health issues across the whole of society which will um, free up a whole load of, um, of healthcare um, uh, uh, spend for governments and I think you know if we can eat better care more about what we eat uh, source it more locally we will all just be happier people uh, and that and that will just make things better that was a wonderful speech like <laughs> it was really nice it's one of those speeches that you can just get lost in listening so i'm not well, thinking the word and imagining it but it's it's true it's a hard speech to make it's yeah. a hard speech to make because you don't you know i've read a lot i've studied a lot but i'm not an academic person i'm a cook with a and a, i'm a gobby one and and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and and because of that you know i I worry when I say things like that. But you're asking me what I believe. And what I believe is, if we care more about what we eat and we share it with each other and we put more focus on where it comes from and we look after that because it is precious, yeah. then things can only be better. Yeah, 100%. I believe that. But Tim, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Well, we have more discussions to have, but I can't wait. <laughs> you're, totally, you're totally welcome. You knew it was going to be good because the sun is shining in northeast Scotland. Of so course, you're in Scotland and it's bright blue, well, white and glaring. It, you look like a, a, like a, a saint because you've got these beautiful <laughs> rays, <laughs> literally. I'm going to screenshot this and send it to you because it just looks amazing. It's like this beautiful like square window and then rays of sunshine. It's hilarious, it's brilliant. <laughs>
I've got massive old headphones on. Probably look more like a Cyberman from Doctor Who. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. I'm no worries, good. Anisha. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Brilliant. Thank you.